we light a light in the name of God who creates life. We light a light in the name of Christ who loves life. We light a light in the name of Spirit who is the fire of life. Let us worship God. Whichever way you 
Whichever way we turn, O oh God, there is your face. Now we turn to your scripture, and once again we pray that we will see your face and hear your voice and perceive your call on our lives. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So things start normally enough in this morning's passage in John's Gospel, just a dinner party with good friends, except for the remarkably abnormal fact that one of the hosts is Lazarus. In the last chapter, Lazarus was brought back to life after being dead for three days, and except for the fact that it's an odd time to throw a party. The Lazarus story is a turning point in John's Gospel. The authorities realize when the news about Lazarus gets around, even more people will follow Jesus. They'll think he's some sort of savior. And if that happens, the Romans will wreak havoc on everyone. They decide to put a stop to this. Better to have one man die than to have the whole nation destroyed, they say. Passover's coming up, so the authorities plan to grab Jesus when he shows up in Jerusalem for the festival. Jesus' days are numbered, and he knows it. So maybe, after all, that's the perfect time to shut out the world and enjoy an evening with the people you love. Jesus is in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem with his dearest friends, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Some of the disciples are there as well. At some point in the evening, without any explanation, Mary breaks open a bottle of nard, an incredibly expensive perfumed ointment. Mary lets her hair down in a room full of men, which an honorable woman never does. If you're going to anoint someone, the head is the place to do it, but Mary pours the nard on Jesus' feet. She touches him, a single woman touching a single man's feet. It's just not done not even among friends. And then in the oddest move of all, she wipes off the perfume with her hair. Oh my gosh, is anyone else a little uncomfortable with this? Or a lot? I mean, maybe she is overwhelmed with, the, with gratitude for what Jesus did for them and their brother. But the whole incident is not only one of excess, but of eroticism. We have to be in complete denial to pretend there's nothing going on here, at least as far as Mary's concerned. Just exactly what isn't clear, but Mary has stepped far outside the bounds of convention, teetering on the edge of scandal. That's why Judas reacts so strongly. Something is happening at the dinner table that belongs in the bedroom of a married couple. Judas attacks Mary, focusing on the cost of the ointment. The nard is worth 300 denarii, the wages earned by a typical worker in an entire year. According to the app Mint, an average salary for a San Francisco bus driver is $45,000 a year. That's what we're talking about, $45,000 blown on one night of partying. This might make me even more uncomfortable than the hair thing. Doesn't Judas have a point? And doesn't this seem out of character for Jesus, the champion of the poor? But Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jim Wallace writes that somehow this verse gets translated into an excuse that says, 
There's nothing we can do about poverty. The poor will always be there, so why bother? But what Jesus meant was, you'll always have the poor with you because you're my disciples. You know who we spend time with. You'll always be near the poor. Jesus is quoting Torah here, and the context is important. In Deuteronomy, God tells Moses, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward those of your people who are poor and needy in your land. Now, we're told by the narrator that Judas isn't being altruistic. The gospel writer is telling us, keep your eye on this guy. Judas is judging Mary's behavior. But Jesus says, leave her alone. Leave me alone. Let it go, because my time is running out. Whatever Mary's original motivations, Jesus knows what waits for him in Jerusalem. Maybe Mary suspects it too. Jesus says she saved the nard for the day of his burial, although the actual day of his burial is some days off. What he's saying is he's as good as dead now. He's a dead man walking. So leave her alone, Jesus says, because her kind of love is what Jesus needs, and it's what the world needs. Mid-20th century theologian Paul Tillich sums up the story this way. Mary has performed an act of holy waste, growing out of the abundance of her heart. Judas has his emotional life under control. Jesus alone knows that without the abundance of heart, nothing great can happen. He knows that calculating love is not love at all. The history of humankind, Tillich continues, is the history of men and women who wasted themselves and were not afraid to do so. They did not fear to waste themselves in the service of a new creation. They wasted out of the fullness of their hearts. What does this mean for all of us? Your Lenten theme this year is what's next. In John's Gospel, the only other time we encounter Mary isn't next, it's before this scene, when Jesus sees her weeping after her brother Lazarus has died. We're told that when Jesus saw her and the others weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. The Greek words translated as greatly disturbed and deeply moved are unusually powerful words here. Jesus is really bent out of shape at the sorrow of Mary and the others. His extravagantly compassionate response is to bring Lazarus back from the dead. Maybe he can't heal every leper or paralytic. Maybe he can't bring back every friend from the dead, but it doesn't stop him from helping this time. It ended up getting him in hot water with the authorities, but he did not fear to waste himself in service of a new creation. So then in today's passage, Mary echoes Jesus' holy waste, his extravagant compassion, by anointing him with the costly ointment. Perhaps what this story is reminding us is that extravagant compassion is what Jesus offered, and it's exactly what this world needs. It's what's next, not only for Mary, but for us. 
not in spite of the fact that we're surrounded by the unhoused, by people desperate for justice, by nuclear saber rattling, but because we are. You and I can't right every injustice. We can't heal every hatred. But that shouldn't stop us from stepping in with extravagant compassion, with radical love and acceptance, when and where we can. What does extravagant compassion look like? Author Brene Brown writes about her own Judas-like tendency to judge others and stew in her own self-righteousness, a tendency that kicked into high gear when she met her hotel roommate at a conference. When she reached their room, there was the roommate, boots up on the sofa, eating a Cinnabon. Before shaking hands with Brown, the roommate wiped icing on the sofa upholstery. Later, she had a cigarette on the balcony, even though it was a smoke-free hotel. Back home, Brown fumed about the roommate in her therapist's office. Brown said that people who not only disregard the rules, but make fun of those who follow them, what she calls sewer rats and scoff laws, drive her nuts. Her therapist asked her to consider a simple question. Are people basically doing the best they can? Her therapist admitted that for her, the answer is yes. While we can always grow and improve as people, and we should, it's possible that the rude roommate is using the tools and resources she has to try and make her way in the world. Brown was disgusted by this idea. How can wiping Cinnabon icing on a hotel sofa be one's best? She started researching this notion. Sociological research is her profession, hoping to confirm her own perspective. She asked people, do you think everyone is doing the best they can? She began to notice that those who thought people aren't doing their best were hard, unequivocal, and judgy in their responses. They didn't just say no, they said hell no. In contrast, here's what she writes about those who believed people are doing their best. They were slow to answer and seemed almost apologetic, as if they were trying to persuade themselves otherwise, but just couldn't give up on humanity. They were also careful to explain that it didn't mean that people can't grow or change. Still, at any given time, they figured people are normally doing the best they can with the tools they have, given their experience, upbringing, education, abilities, and brokenness. Her husband answered the question this way, I don't know, I really don't. All I know is that my life is better when I assume that people are doing their best. It keeps me out of judgment and lets me focus on what is and not what should or could be. Brown addressed the murderers, assassins, and terrorists question we all bring to this, which this spring would also include the authoritarian leader bombing civilians question. Are murderers, terrorists, and Putin really doing the best they can? Brown's answer is yes, but their best is dangerous. If someone's best is harmful, we need boundaries to protect us. And in some cases, that means locking people up so they can't hurt others, or firing them, moving them out of the apartment, not voting for them, unfriending them on Facebook, or 
protecting people in the path of invasion. Brown found in her research that the most extravagantly compassionate people are those who also have the best boundaries in terms of holding people accountable. They are the people who are able to say without rancor, you know, this is just not okay. Then Brown describes a conversation that further convinced her to practice extravagant compassion. In one of her interviews, when she asked, do you believe that people are doing the best they can? The interviewee said, hell no, and then launched into a diatribe about those horrible mothers who don't breastfeed their children for at least a year, and if they aren't willing to do that, they shouldn't even have children. Brown, who breastfed her kids for just a few months, discovered that she was on that woman's list of sewer rats and scofflaws. And she realized the truth. We're all on someone's list of sewer rats and scofflaws. Mary was on Judas' list. She went overboard, not only wasting money, but expressing her devotion with embarrassing intimacy. Pretty soon, Jesus is on that list, too, and we see where that leads. In this passage, Jesus shows extravagant compassion for both Mary and Judas. They are doing the best they can. Jesus accepts Mary's show of love because people are more important than the rules of propriety. He draws a boundary, telling Judas to leave her alone. Leave her alone because even if she went overboard, she gets it. Mary gets it that extravagant compassion will save the world. Extravagant compassion isn't easy. I know this. I ran across an exercise that might help. Whenever it's hard to imagine someone is doing the best he can, remind yourself, just like me, he's seeking happiness in his life. Just like me, he's trying to avoid suffering. Just like me, he's had sadness, loneliness, and despair. Just like me, he's learning about life. The history of humankind, Paul Tillich wrote, is the history of men and women who wasted themselves and were not afraid to do so. They did not fear to waste themselves in the service of a new creation. I'm guessing that living as though everyone is actually doing the best they can feels like a waste to some of you. It might not feel cost-effective. It might feel just way too generous. But extravagant compassion means wasting yourself in the service of a new creation. It can change our lives and our world. It frees us to build bridges, bind wounds, and comfort the shamed and broken. God can do so much through us when we live from the fullness of our hearts. Extravagant compassion, it's what's next. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God. Oh, God. 
have fed us in word, in silence, in song, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. Charge you to go forth, experimenting, exploring what it might mean to think that everybody is actually doing the best they can. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the community of the Holy Spirit be with you all today and evermore. Go in peace. <laughs>